0: I'm uh, Pastor Michael, and uh, we're looking at what are called the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and uh, today we're going to look at the final resurrection story in the Gospel of John. It's the longest of the stories, and in many ways it feels like the epilogue. It feels like a postscript. Because in verses 30 through 31 um, of chapter 20, which will be at the top of our passage, when you read that, that feels like the concluding summary of the entire book. That feels like the natural end. But then John gives us one more story. And I'm so glad he did, because it is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible. And rather than preach through through the whole story in a single take, because there's so much here, there's 25 verses, Pastor Wade and I decided to break it up into three parts. I'm going to preach the introduction, which, which is verses 1 through 14. Next week, Wade is going to preach the heart of the story, which is 15 through 19. It's the restoration of Peter, his forgiveness, and his commissioning. And then I'm going to preach the conclusion 20 to 25 in which uh, the gospel writer John is sort of tying up loose ends. He's sort of wrapping up the story. And then we will have finished the gospel of John. And I will be so happy and so proud because it's been an incredible journey of over two years where we preached every single chapter, every single verse. But I want you to know that the text we're going to look at today is really a challenge to preach because it's really the setup to the main story, the main drama, which is Peter's restoration. But I think there's really a lot of um, points of interest and I'm really excited to preach this passage. But I want to warn you that my sermon is going to feel a bit disjointed. None of my three points are going to relate to the other. Um, but I hope you will bear with me, and it will prove edifying. So with that in mind, let's read our passage. Um, Let me pull out my glasses here. So I'm going to read to you from the top, chapter 20, starting in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. This is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This is the word of God. So, here are my three points. Again, um, it's a little bit disjointed. First, we're going to look at the historicity of the story. Secondly, we're going to look at Jesus' resurrection body. And then finally, we're going to look at the story itself. So first, the historicity of the story. Now, we've talked about this several times already as we have looked at the resurrection stories. And I want to talk about it again because this is vitally important. This is the foundation of our faith. Because of all the world's religions, Christianity is uniquely a historical event. If Christianity were just a philosophy of life, if it was just a set of moral teachings, then the stories in the Bible, whether they are true or not, wouldn't really matter. They could be like Aesop's fables, colorful stories with a moral at the end. But Christianity is so much greater than just wise principles for living. Listen to me. Christianity is ultimately the declaration of the good news. It is good news, which is where we get our word gospel. And the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, eu meaning good, angelon meaning message. The euangelion, right? Did you know that the, the, the gospel is actually not a native biblical word. It's actually a loan word. It's a borrowed word from the larger Greco Roman culture. And it goes like this Imagine that you are the citizen of an ancient city, and one day you and your neighbors begin to receive reports of an invading foreign army approaching your city. And the whole city is in a flurry of anxiety and fear. But your king, he comes and he rallies his men. He gathers his army and he goes out and he fights for you and he meets the enemy on the battlefield. Now, you need to understand your fate, your lives completely depend on the outcome of that battle. Because if the battle goes poorly for your side, if your king is vanquished, the army is annihilated, then the the invading army will come and sack the city, and you will either be killed or you'll be taken captive as, as a slave. Or, on the other hand, if your army, if your king emerges victorious, if he prevails, then he will secure your freedom And when he comes, he will bring with him the spoils of war. Those are the two outcomes. And so, of course, you can imagine, as the battle is raging, all the citizens of the city are on edge. They're waiting anxiously for the news of the outcome. And therefore, when the king, if he is victorious in battle, he immediately dispatches a messenger. And that messenger runs. <laughs> he runs with all of his speed back to the city. And then he announces to the city gates the Galleon, The good news of victory. And you need to understand that news has a profound impact on the city. And with that news comes joy and hope. In peace. But don't you see only if the news is true. If the messenger is lying, if the messenger is mistaken, then the impact, the good impact of the news will be temporary and ultimately illusory. What is the good news of Christianity? The good news is that Jesus Christ, our King, has defeated sin and death on the battlefield of a Roman cross, and that victory is confirmed and vindicated in His resurrection. And therefore, whether Jesus actually died and rose again matters. It is of critical importance. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain, right? Paul is a messenger of the King. Then his preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Everything depends on the historicity of the New Testament. One of the most helpful books that I've read on this is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham is a renowned, respected scholar. He teaches at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And in his book, he says that if you read the Gospels, you'll notice that the Gospel writers are very careful and meticulous about names. Sometimes, in the stories, people are named, and other times, people are left unnamed. So for example, you have Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, this is after the crucifixion, two disciples, two of Jesus' disciples are walking back home to the town of Emmaus. And along the way, Jesus appears to them. One of the disciples is named. He is Cleopas, and the other disciple is left unnamed. So why should that be? Why not name both disciples if you're gonna name people Or why not leave them both unnamed if it doesn't matter? Or consider the case of Mark 15. You have the story of Simon of Cyrene. When Jesus was being crucified, he was walking, he was carrying his cross through Jerusalem. He stumbles because he's weakened by the Roman scourging. So the Roman soldiers conscript a man who happens to be standing in the crowd. Mark gives us the name of this man, He is Simon of Cyrene. And then the Gospel of Mark goes on to say he had two sons. The names of his two sons, it says he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why do we need to know the names of his sons? Richard Bauckham makes the case, I think, very persuasively, incredibly well researched in this book, that every time someone is named in the Gospels, it is because they were well-known in the early church. And they were their whole life telling their part of the story, their participation in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so you had in the early church this community of living eyewitnesses, hundreds of them, And in the case of Simon of Cyrene, Richard Bauckham says, the reason why his two sons are mentioned is because they had become prominent members of the early church. And what must have happened is that Simon of Cyrene, right? He just happens to be, he's a pilgrim from a North African province. He's in Jerusalem for Passover. And he's standing in the crowd and he happens to be selected and conscripted to carry Jesus's cross. And so he saw it all. He had a front row seat. He saw, he heard everything. He heard the words of Jesus from the cross and he became a believer. And probably he brought along his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and for the rest of their lives, They could not stop telling the story of their father's part in the story. When we look at our text in verse 2, notice that John makes careful note of the names. He says there were seven disciples present that day. There was Simon Peter. There was Thomas, whose story we heard last week. I thought Pastor Wade preached an excellent sermon on Thomas. There was Nathanael of Cana, in chapter who we met in chapter 1. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And then, we're get, and then we're told there were two other disciples who are left unnamed. And Richard Bauckham says, most likely what happened is that these two, two disciples had died early on so that they were unknown in the early church. And so they could not act as witnesses to this story because every time the gospel writers cites a name, they are citing the name as an eyewitness and the implicit message is go and ask them, go and hear their story. There's other evidence in our text that this story comes from living memories. There are these telltale signs, for example, details that don't have any other purpose other than that it was simply remembered. For example, the fact that Peter put back on his outer garment before jumping into the water. The fact that the boat was about 100 yards from land. And actually, in the original Greek, it's a much more precise measurement. It says it was 200 cubits from shore. A cubit is the length from your, your elbow to your, your middle finger. And uh, of course, you know, people in the ancient world had different length of arms. And so this was a pre-scientific world. The measurements weren't that exact but we're told it was 200 cubits. The fact that the fire that Jesus started was a charcoal fire, not a wood-burning fire, as you would expect. The fact that the catch of fish was 153. It's an awfully precise number. If you're going to make up a story, you would expect that it would be a symbolic number, like 70, 7 being the number of completion, or 120, 12 being Uh, the tribes of Israel, uh, representing the fullness of God's people. But what does 153 represent? Over the years, medieval commentators and others have twisted themselves into a pretzel trying to figure out what does 153 represent? It doesn't represent anything. It's because somebody actually sat down and counted the fish. They were large fish, John tells us. And as they counted them, It numbered 153 and the whole experience, that whole moment was so astonishing, was so overwhelming that that number was forever emblazed in their memories. These are the kinds of details that you would expect if this account comes from memory. Because when people experience an intense moment, an emotionally heightened experience, people remember incidental details the color of the sky, the look on somebody's face, what somebody said, all these details stick in the mind. C.S. Lewis, who was a uh, professor of medieval literature at Oxford and who was an expert on ancient manuscripts, he was also uh, for most of his life an atheist who had always believed that the Gospels was one of the world's great myths these beautiful stories, but without any factual basis. He thought they were like Norse mythology. One day, he was challenged by a faculty member to actually read the Gospels and to evaluate them. And so he decided to take up the challenge, and he read the Gospels in the original Greek, and he was surprised by what he found. He says, the Gospels do not contain the rich, imaginative elements that you see in virtually all ancient myths. But instead, he said, the accounts are incredibly restrained. They lack fanciful or fantastical details. And then he wrote this in an essay. Uh, listen to this. The Gospels appear to be simple eyewitness accounts of historical events primarily by Jews who were clearly unfamiliar with the great myths of the pagan world around them. I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myth. They had not the mythological taste. Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legends and myth, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They do not work. Do you hear what C.S. Lewis is saying? He's saying the Gospels lack the features that you see in pagan myths, like the Iliad or the Odyssey. You'll never read about Achilles sitting by the fire. It was a charcoal fire, and he was eating fish. In fact, he was eating four fish, two loaves of bread, and he was about 200 yards from shore. That's how memory works, but that's not how myths and legends are told. If you read the epistles, again and again we're told, these are living memories. Listen to Peter in his epistle 2 Peter 1:16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Or consider John in his epistle 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. You can reject Christianity as a fraud, you can dismiss the stories as a pack of lies, but do not patronize the Bible as beautiful legends in which it doesn't matter if it's true, because the point is that Jesus is a wonderful moral teacher. The gospel writers do not give us that option. Jesus of Nazareth is either the Lord of all creation, or he is a scoundrel and a fraud, and the whole thing is a hoax. Either you must bend the knee to the creator God in human flesh, or you must renounce him and denounce him as the greatest liar that has ever lived. Those are the only two options. Okay, that's the first point, Historicity. second point, Jesus' resurrection body. So, there's something very interesting in the story, which actually we've already seen before, which is that the disciples don't recognize Jesus at first. He calls out to them on the boat, but they don't recognize him. And it is only after the miraculous catch of fish that John recognizes him. And then even at the end, we're given this very curious line in verse 14. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Okay, they knew it was the Lord, but why would they even have to ask? Because even though it was the Lord, don't you see, his appearance was not completely the same. It was Jesus, and yet he was different. There's continuity and there's discontinuity. We saw the same thing actually a few weeks ago in John chapter 20 when Jesus showed himself before Mary Magdalene. In verse 15 of that story, it says, she did not know it was Jesus. Remember, she assumed that he was the gardener, and it was only when he spoke her name that she recognizes him. We see this a third time in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, a story I already mentioned. You have two disciples. One of them was Cleopas, They're walking home from Jerusalem. And on the way, the risen Jesus joins them. (laughs) And He begins to talk with them and and to teach them. And they don't recognize Him. And the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus is about eight miles. So this is not a short walk. And the whole time, He's he's telling them how the Scriptures predicted the sufferings and the death of the Messiah and how He must rise again from the dead. What must have been (laughs) the greatest Bible study that has ever been taught and they don't recognize him. And it's only when they invite him to their home he takes bread, he blesses it, and breaks it when they recognize him. By the way, in each of these three cases no explanation is given for why they cannot recognize Jesus at first. So what should we make of this? First of all, I think this is another reason to believe these are reliable historical accounts. Because why would you include this strange detail, (laughs) which seems to undermine the case? Because if they didn't immediately recognize them, then maybe they were mistaken all along. So what's going on here? The best explanation that I've ever read is by N.T. Wright in his magisterial book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which I showed you uh, the last time I preached, one of the most impactful books I've ever read. It's an incredible book on the resurrection. And commenting on these three passages, N.T. Wright says that you have to remember that the resurrection is not just the restoration of our bodies, but it is their glorification. As Paul says, we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, We will all be transformed and yet still the same. And the analogy that N.T. Wright um, uses in his book is he says, think about the time when you visited your friend in the hospital and he was dying of cancer. And you're shocked and you're saddened by how diminished he looks, how the cancer has ravaged his body. And you think to yourself, my friend looks like a shadow of his former self. He's the same person, but his appearance has been disfigured by disease and the onset of death. N.T. Wright says that the resurrection is that dynamic, but in reverse. He says that in the resurrection, our bodies will not just be restored to their prior full health, but they will be glorified. So that in the resurrection to come, when we look back at our former selves, we will say we were only a shadow of what we are now. I want you to know that this is not just an interesting curiosity about the resurrection. Because remember, as Paul taught us, Jesus is the first fruits. What happened to him is the first fruits of what will happen to the whole world. See, you and I, we are still waiting for the resurrection to come. And I want you to know that the resurrection is not just a return to Eden. See, Eden was paradise. Eden was the world before there was sin. But it's not our true home. The new heavens and the new earth, that is our home. And when we will be with God forever. The language of scripture that describes this is extravagant. It talks about all of creation waking up as if the world as it is now is only but asleep. It talks about, as it does in our call to worship passage in Isaiah 55, how the mountains and the hills will break forth into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands and rejoice. It's an incredible image. Colossians 1:20 says it will be the reconciliation of all things. This whole world will be healed. Everything will be made right. Every broken friendship will be restored. It's an incredible vision of what is to come. All right, that leads me to my third point. Let's look at the story itself. The key to the story is to recognize the parallel in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, which comes at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, is the story of the call of Peter. Peter. Some of you may remember that I actually preached on this about six months ago on the anniversary of our church. Let me refresh your memory. So in this story, um, you have Peter and his brother Andrew and uh, along with their business partners, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, they go out onto the Sea of Galilee and they spend the entire night fishing. Now, there were several advantages to fishing at night. Uh, the fish could be attracted to the torchlight. Um, in the nighttime, the net was hard to see for the fish. So they spend the entire night on the Sea of Galilee, and they catch nothing. And early the next morning, you know they're exhausted, they're on the shore, they're, they're cleaning their nets, they're ready to call it a day and go home. And then what happens is Jesus comes along and he says to Simon Peter, go back out and put and cast your net into the deep. Now you have to understand, these are professional fishermen. And Jesus, who is he? He's a traveling rabbi. What does he know? And, you know, the disciples, they have spent the entire night fishing. They have confirmed there are no fish in the sea. What difference does it make to go back out and cast the net once more? But Peter says, "Because you have said so, we will do it." So he goes out with Andrew, casts the net one more time. and this enormous quantity of fish is caught in the net. It's an overwhelming number. It's so huge, it's so heavy that Peter and Andrew um, ask James and John to come, and all four of them in their boats are trying to bring in this monstrous catch, and it's so enormous, the text tells us the boats begin to sink. It's almost comical. And then you have John chapter 21. It's virtually the same story. The disciples go out on the Sea of Galilee at night to fish. Again, They catch nothing. Early the next morning, a stranger on the shore calls out, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, I know nothing about fishing. So initially, I thought, oh, maybe there's a difference between casting your net on the right side versus the left side. I read the commentaries. I did a quick internet search. It doesn't make a difference. And just like in Luke chapter 5, the request makes no practical sense at all. They've been out on the, on the boat all night long. What difference does it make to cast the net on the other side? But they do it anyway. And in their net, they bring up this super abundance of fish. It's as if every fish in the Sea of Galilee just leaped onto the net. And, and rested in there. It's a miracle. And the, and the disciples realize. They have seen this before. That the man on the, on, the, on the shore. Is the creator. He's the Lord of all things. Who by his supernatural power. Has control over nature. And the seas and all that is in them. But here's the crucial difference in the two stories. In Luke chapter five, when Peter sees this miraculous catch of fish, if you remember, he says, Lord, depart from me. Get away from me for I am a sinful man. But in this story, in John chapter 21, Peter jumps into the water. And he dashes like mad, like a crazy person, to get near Jesus. Did you notice that? You have these two completely different responses. Almost the same thing happens in both stories. But Peter reacts in completely opposite ways. In Luke 5, Peter says, Get away from me. I want nothing to do with you. But in John 21, Peter can't get to Jesus quick enough and he leaps into the water. What has changed? You have the same miraculous catch. You have the same setting, the same Lord. But don't you see, it's Peter who has changed. You see, the Peter in Luke 5 did not yet know the gospel. The Peter in Luke 5 when he came into the presence of the divinity of Jesus, he felt like he was going to die. He felt overcome by his wretchedness and his unworthiness. But the Peter in John 21 is three years later, three years of following Jesus, three years of being discipled by the Lord. And in those three years, he came to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, "The gospel is that you are more sinful and more wretched than you could ever imagine about yourself than you would ever allow yourself allow and admit to yourself, but at the same time, you are more loved. And more accepted in Jesus Christ than you could ever dare hope. You see that Peter in in John 21 was not substantially more moral or courageous than he was before. You have to remember that at this point in the story, Peter had just failed the Lord in a spectacular way. Right? He had boasted. These other disciples may Abandon you, Lord, but I will never forsake you. And then in the moment of testing, he denied Jesus three times, and the last time he called down curses on his master, and he said vehemently, I do not know that man. That had to have been on Peter's mind. That had to have been weighing on his heart. But when he sees Jesus, he runs runs to him into his arms of grace. That's the gospel. I want to close by giving you the gospel. There's a wonderful summary in verses 30 and 31, and I want to read it to you again. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let me break this up into parts and go through it. The first thing this passage tells us is who Jesus is. This is the most important question we could ask. Who is Jesus? What is his identity? And we're given two titles in the text. We're told, first... That he is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. And it comes from the word Christos, which is the Greek word for Messiah. Now, who is the Messiah? The Messiah is a figure in the Old Testament who would be descended from the royal line of David. And so he would be this heroic king. In fact, he would be even greater than David because in Psalm 110, David calls him Lord. And when the Messiah comes, he will fight as Israel's king the enemies of Israel. And he will rescue God's people from evil and injustice. And then he will restore the kingdom, a kingdom greater than Solomon's. And so all through the Old Testament, the Jewish people they're waiting for this figure. They're waiting for the Messiah. And they thought that when the Messiah comes, because they are groaning under oppression, that he would, he would smash the evil Romans. But what happens is Jesus of Nazareth comes onto the scene. And he preaches about the kingdom of God. And he takes onto himself the mantle of the son of David. But he came to defeat a greater enemy which is sin and death. And his battlefield was the cross. And he came to establish a far greater kingdom than Solomon's, which is the kingdom of God, which Jesus says starts out as a little mustard seed and then becomes this incredible tree that fills the whole earth. And that's what the church is doing. That's the mission that we are on. The second title we're given is that he is the son of God. This is actually one of the titles of the Messiah. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is divine, but it demonstrates his special status. David and Solomon were both called the Son of God. But in the Gospel of John, this title takes on a deeper meaning. It tells us that Jesus is God's unique Son. He is the only begotten Son, John 3, 16. Now, I know that to modern ears and even to ancient ears, that sounds rather strange, right? How can God have a son? But what this is showing us is that Jesus came not only to rescue us as the Messiah, but he came to show us the very nature of God. Remember in John chapter 1, Jesus is the Word. He is the revelation of God. And the very nature of God is this god is triune he is father son and holy spirit and the fact that god is triune tells us what that the essence of god is not ultimately that he is the creator because god existed before there was ever a created world it's not his power or his greatness but the essence of god is that he is a family he is a father who loves and delights in his son my favorite verse John 1.18, the Son is in the bosom of the Father. God is a Son obeying and submitting perfectly to the Father. Jesus says, I do nothing unless my Father has commanded me. God is a Spirit who comes to dwell with us, to bring us into the very life of God. Romans 8 says, by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. That's Jesus. That's who he is. That is the good news. Now, what are we supposed to do with this news? John tells us we are to believe in him. This is written so that you may believe. So what does it mean to believe? Listen very carefully. I want you to know that faith is not just intellectual assent. It's not just doctrines in your head. But listen to me, faith is trusting Christ with your whole life. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you come to a bridge and this bridge spans across this thousand foot chasm, right? You come to the edge, you look down and you feel queasy your friend who is bigger and much heavier than you decides to go across first and he ambles across happily and he gets to the other side safely. Now it's your turn. You know the bridge can hold you. You just saw your friend amble across but you're afraid. So what is faith? Faith is not just saying Intellectually, I know the bridge can hold me. Faith is stepping off the ground in which you are standing and putting your weight onto the bridge. And when you shift your weight from the land onto the bridge, that's when you have put your faith in the bridge. What does it mean to put your faith in Christ? It means that you take the weight of your life off of whatever it is that you think is your savior. You know, the Bible says we all have functional saviors. For some of us, it's career success and financial security. For some of us, it's romantic love and starting a family. For others, it's artistic endeavors or our hobbies and and enjoyments. We all have something that our souls say This is is my life. This is my satisfaction. To believe in Jesus means that you shift your weight off of those things and onto Christ. It means to obey Him. It means to follow Him. It means to trust Him so that He becomes your joy. He becomes your hope. He becomes your consolation. Do you know what consolation means? It means that when your life is falling apart, when your plans are going awry and everyone has turned against you, what is that thing that you tell your heart, it's going to be okay because I still have this. I'm going to be okay because I still have this treasure in my life. Whatever that is, that's your consolation. It's Christ your consolation. And when you believe, John says, you will have life in his name. What does it mean to have life? When the Gospel of John talks about life, he's not just talking about biological life or physical existence, but he's talking about life with God. In the Gospel of John, this is called eternal life. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's not just life that goes on forever, without end. Without God, that would be hell. But eternal life is fellowship with God. It is to be brought into His presence, to have a love relationship with Him. Think about the happiest moments in your life. The happiest moments in your life were never just material. Right? It was never just you know, buying some new electronic gadget or eating a really delicious meal. It was never just experiential, you know, going on some incredible exotic vacation. But the happiest moments in your life are when you are doing something that you enjoy with the people that you love. The happiest moments, the deepest happiness of our hearts is always relational. I want you to know that that is a dim foretaste of what it will be like to be with God forever. We were created to have a relationship with him. Finally, how do we know this is true? I want you to know that Christianity is not a leap of faith. It's not a blind faith. In verse 30, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That's what Jesus' miracles are. They're signs. They're not just naked displays of power to impress people, but they're all pointing to Jesus, to his identity, to his work of redemption. And I want you to know the final and greatest sign was the resurrection. And I want to close by reading to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the, verse, the first eight verses where Paul talks about the resurrection, and I want you to notice, he talks about this cloud of eyewitnesses. Listen to the text. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if, right, you have to persevere, if you hold fast to the faith Uh, to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Right? Paul is implying you can go and talk with them at the time of, of this letter. Though some have fallen asleep, that means they died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I want you to know this happened. Paul is a, is a messenger of the Messiah telling us the euangelion, the good news. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I feel like we are little children that have been playing in a darkened cave and our eyes cannot bear the glory and the brightness of the noonday sun. This doctrine of the resurrection is so great. It's so glorious. Human words cannot capture the fullness of it. And our lisping lips have only partially revealed the truth. I pray that this doctrine and this truth would not just be an intellectual fact that we have in our minds, but it would be a power. It would be this pulsating reality that controls our lives, that gives us a hope, a strength, a deep comfort and consolation in this life. And we're still waiting, Lord. We're waiting for the resurrection to come the restoration of all things. We're waiting for King Jesus to come and make all things right. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.